Welcome to a special encore presentation of Compassion Radio. On Compassion Radio today, I'm introducing a friend of the ministry who hasn't been around for quite a while, but James Michael Smith, the Disciple Jojo from North Carolina. Welcome back to Compassion Radio. It is good to be back. Good to talk to you again, Brian. I've been tracking you the past couple of years. You've been going kind of crazy with all of your YouTube channel stuff, and you've got a, seems like a very youthful focus broadcast, but you're also tying into young people's desire to go deeper in truth. So you have lots of disciplined things and things you teach about your martial arts, but you also spend a lot of time teaching the discipline of dedicated and focused Bible study, knowing what the Word of God really says. So you're speaking to, it seems to me like two different groups of people, but it seems like they all converge in you. So tell me more about what you do and why you do it. Well, I think part of it is because I am thoroughly Gen X, mm-hmm. and Gen Xers are kind of bilingual culturally. You know, we grew up in an analog age, but we are comfortable with digital. So I kind of straddle the boomer and millennial generations and try to speak to both languages. But yeah, I started Disciple Dojo, the ministry that I do, a Christian discipleship ministry about uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago now, after serving as a discipleship pastor at a large Methodist church here in Charlotte. And the ministry, initially it was my blog, I just named my blog The Disciple Dojo because I'm a lifelong martial artist and a martial arts instructor. And a dojo is where you go to learn. It's where you go to get beat up by your friends in a way that makes you better and in a way that improves you. And at the end of the day, after you've choked and armbarred each other a million times, you pat each other on the back and you thank your partner for a great session and you leave better than when you got there. And so I looked at that as how I see discipleship and especially the teaching ministry in biblical teaching. We should be challenging. We should be striving. We should be pushing back against each other, not in a way of, you know, hurting the other person or belittling the other person, but in a way of sharpening our ideas. You know, if I really believe something, I want to make sure I really know what I'm talking about it. It's similar to how when PhDs have to defend their thesis, they go in front of a board who is going to try to tear it apart, not because they don't like the person, but because they want to make sure that they have the strongest argument possible. It goes for martial arts. It goes for discipleship. It goes for relationships, you know, anything like that. I would like to unpack the idea of the dissertation here in a minute because I'm going to put a spin on that. But you've also put a spin on the idea of iron sharpens iron. You're saying in the dojo cage match here, there's going to be one bruise that gets another, but at the end of it, our muscles will be stronger. And there's going to be some punches thrown, even amongst the best of friends or the best of brothers. You know, they grew up in the same household. It's kind of hard not to have fights once in a while. I see fights going on all around us like crazy. And you and I on Facebook kind of crossing paths on different issues and topics and the weird stuff that comes at you or the weird stuff that comes at me. It's bizarre at times that there's so much animus, like right below the surface, it wants to explode. If you could, for me, being a theologian who actually looks at motivations and meaning and the subtext of what's on the page, do the same kind of treatment of Facebook for me. When you read people's messages and the way they respond to each other, what are you seeing about their ability to comprehend and to see the person, the real word behind the words on that page? Well, some people are better at it than other people. (laughs) Uh, It is a social skill. It's social media, and it involves a social IQ And some people really don't have developed social IQs. So they see any disagreement as an attack. 
and any difference of opinion as something to go to war over. And part of it is the medium itself. There's no nonverbal communication. You're only reading the words, so you have no tone of voice. Yeah. You have no nonverbal cues. You don't know if the person's saying it with a smile on their face or a twinkle in their eye, or if they're saying it foaming at the mouth as a raging lunatic. Yeah. Unless you know a person, it's like a Rorschach test in yeah, a lot of ways. You can read in people's comments all kinds of things that just aren't there. So I try to encourage people to be aware of that, to not be afraid to push back. I share a lot. Facebook and, and social media are a huge part of the ministry of Disciple Dojo. You know, our, our ministry is equip, engage, empower. And, mm -hmm. and that middle part, engage, a huge part of that is social media engagement, uh, talking about the issues and exploring being up on what's going on, whether it's pop culture, whether it's politics, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's theology. You know, if, if somebody only uses Facebook to share pictures of their grandkids or follow food recipes or look at cat videos, then they're going to probably have a different approach to a rigorous discussion that pops up on their feed. And those are the kind of people I usually see either bow out completely and get upset whenever there's disagreement or the ones who really kick it into overdrive, double down, and every disagreement is a war for them. But I think with most things, truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a discernment, you know, know when to answer a fool according to their folly and when <laughs> to not answer a fool according to their folly. And that requires wisdom. <laughs> And I would think, too, that the idea of who is my neighbor is something that we are not putting ourselves through that filter. And so we're not treating the people that we really sense to be against us or the other in this realm here to be something worth throwing punches at, where we would never have done that sitting in the pew in front of our own pastor. Yes, absolutely. We're unleashed somehow. And it bothers me because I think it's becoming normalized that flaming somebody is just normal rhetoric. It's not. Right. It, nor has it been. And when it has become normalized rhetoric in any society, countries fall apart. Nations yeah. go to war. And I think we're seeing plenty of that right on the tinder right now. And the spark gets thrown and we are seeing Christians saying, I would literally kill somebody in order to prove this point because I'm so tired of hearing the other garbage I'm hearing from the other side. And yeah. I think it's a, a real disease on our souls. And so we have to be very aggressive on that. And I, I'm sure I will make what start as enemies for saying that. But I don't want anybody who hears me poking at those who would advocate violence or seemingly advocate violence to think that I'm writing them off. I'm simply saying that history is our teacher here. And you are a student and a scholar of history, biblical history. But that includes a whole lot of these kind of cycles. You've seen nations rise and fall in those words. You understand where they fit in with each other and why it's so important we understand the relationship of Israel to the Canaanites, to the Ammonites, to all the other tribes that were around them, or to Egypt, or to the Greek world. Mm -hmm. We went to you before because you are an expert in Old Testament. Now, that's what's kind of ironic to me, someone as young as you, being that interested in and that proficient in the Old Testament. So tell me how you arrived at that place of focus. Well, as somebody who will turn uh, 44 this year, I appreciate being called young. I'll take that any time because when I get on the jujitsu mats, let me tell you, I feel like the old man in class. Sure. <laughs> I am an avid reader and studier and teacher of the Old Testament. I would hesitate to say I'm an expert because I don't think anybody can truly be an expert on the Old Testament. It's so vast. But I'm an Old Testament enthusiast for sure. Oh, and I got into it in seminary. It was my second semester at Gordon-Conwell up in South Hamilton. 
I took a class. Actually, it was between the two semesters. So I had my first semester, you know, Greek and uh, systematic theology and all those kind of intro classes. And then I took a class with Gordon Hugenberger, who's a pastor at Park Street Church, an Old Testament scholar. And he taught it. It was called Christ in the Old Testament. There you go. And it basically was a class about typology. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a language class. You know, it was for English Bible. You know, I hadn't had Hebrew at that point yet. But I remember sitting in class and every session, my notebook, I filled up every page yeah. because he was just throwing stuff at me that I'd never, and I'd grown up in the church. I had read scripture. I had led Bible study for years at this point, And it was just blowing my mind. It was one of those that is like every class would just turn on a fire hose and you just sit there with your mouth open and try to catch what you could. And that opened my eyes to it. And then when I realized, you know, the majority of the Bible is the Old Testament. And Jesus never read a New Testament himself, never preached from a New Testament. None of the disciples ever preached from the New Testament. So it made me realize the Old Testament is woefully neglected Mm. by Christians. And that needs to change. Or it's woefully manifested and wielded in ways that cannot justify the way we've arrived at our conclusions. So you are a corrective in some ways, helping us to understand, as you say, Christ in that. You mentioned the word typology. So unpack for me, if you would, what Christology is, what typology is, and what in the study of literature in general, archetype is. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think there are a few different definitions, and I, without pulling up my uh, accordance or logos, could probably not give a correct one. <laughs> but the, the way I explain typology to people that are not Bible nerds is I say, okay, if God is the sovereign author of history, and he works in ways that you can start to see patterns over time, if God does something in the Old Testament that's of significance, And then when you come to something in the New Testament and you see that same pattern happening again, that is the author's way and the spirit's way of saying, pay attention to what's happening because there is correspondence to something that was very important back then. And I'm communicating something about that now today. So a lot of it centers around Jesus, our views of Christology, what we think of the Messiah. Jesus himself said, I've come to fulfill scripture and everything that Moses wrote was about me. So Jesus put the focus on himself in terms of what scripture was ultimately about. So if he was right, if he wasn't a heretic or a lunatic, then when we read the Old Testament, we're reading stuff that laid the groundwork for the story that Jesus then comes and says, I'm the fulfillment, I'm the completion of this story. Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Friends, we're focused right now on the current crisis in and around Ukraine. I personally met with dozens of refugees and kingdom workers who ran to the front lines of need and have selflessly given of themselves completely, thoroughly, and as I saw to the point of indescribable exhaustion, I saw refugee and servant alike shiver in a vicious blizzard that struck the first week of March. They were very much alike in one important way. They were absolutely determined to survive this ordeal and to redeem what their lives have become. We need to follow their example. Will you help us today? We have blankets and food to buy, tanks to fill with gas, and medicine to help them survive the days ahead. 
This need is not going away anytime soon, even as this rescue operation rapidly sweeps the refugees farther west away from the fighting. Friends, really, we need you now to step up. Please, give generously, even sacrificially, right away. I know that God will be pleased if we do. So call us today at 1-800-868-2478. Mail us at P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Text the word COMPASSION to 53445 or give online at CompassionRadio.com. Bless you, friends, for your brave and activist faith. When we read the Old Testament, we're reading stuff that laid the groundwork for the story that Jesus then comes and says, I'm the fulfillment, I'm the completion of this story, and that we're still in today. And it seems like Jesus is also saying, here's your lens. Use this to focus on me. So he's holding us up to the people saying, you read it to me. You tell me what it says. And then look at me in the eye and say, that's what God means. And so he's like, he's testing everybody, but he's also letting them test him by taking the word to his face. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what Old Testament study does for me, and I think for everyone, is it gives us, like you said, a lens through which to view Jesus And there are a lot of lenses that look at Jesus through. There's a right-wing nationalist lens. Mm -hmm. There's a progressive anti-establishment lens. There's an identity politics lens. There's a capitalist lens. There's a socialist lens. You know, everybody wants Jesus on their team. So if you can make a Jesus in your own image, then automatically you have people you're trying to influence in Mm -hmm. a Judeo-Christian culture. So what knowing the Old Testament does is it puts a check on all of these different lenses And it says, no, 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 this is the lens through which Jesus himself claimed to be representing God. And that's what I find most helpful about Old Testament study is it really does clarify who Jesus was and what the gospel is more than probably anything else. And it's becoming, too, in this generation. The gospel has to be a good news story that keeps going and keeps getting written on hearts generation after generation. If Jesus is going to let himself be analyzed by and be challenged by the word he wrote— And says, this is the book, I stand by it. And John says, it's not just a written book and him showing up. He showed up because he is the book. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can look at all of it through him. And you and I, growing up in a New Testament kind of church, are always told that. If you really want to know the Old Testament, look through Jesus. But then Mm -hmm. we get this myopic view of that because we really don't know who Jesus was in his context. Yeah. That's why I appreciate getting back to the source materials. I think it's exactly backwards. I think it's not if you want to know the Old Testament, look to Jesus. I think it should be if you want to know Jesus, first look to the Old Testament. Then if you want to fully understand the Old Testament, look back at it through the lens of mm-hmm. Jesus. People that read the Bible backwards only, instead of the what's called the hermeneutical spiral, where each should be informing the other, I think that's one of the ways we do end up with a de-Judaized, de Hebraized (laughs) version of Jesus that doesn't match what we actually see. Which was the biggest challenge to the early church, right? Are we Jews or are we something else? And that dynamism, that clash was happening between the new Greek believers who were swamping the old believers in the old way. But it was a new thing. And of course, we both know over the history that Jesus intended for it to be intention, intended it to be both so that it could be mm-hmm. all mankind and not separated. Yeah. So it was going to be a messy thing. And I think God knew that and intended it. And when my wife and I were doing a study of and walking our listeners through the book of Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago, I tried to take the view of it that there's something that the king here wanted to say, but I'm not sure that's what God wanted to say. So we're going to have to look at 
what he actually said and what he meant by it, but also what God meant by putting it in the Word of God and what he's trying to say to the king and to the people at that time. Mm -hmm. And because of that, what he can tell us today because of what he was telling them then. We have these multiple layers of conversation going, and I want to always encourage my listeners that if we're going to talk about the Word of God, what is God wanting to reveal to you right now about this? Let Him speak into it in the way He can do it personally with you. But there is going to be different perspectives. That's why we need each other. Yeah. So what do you find when you're teaching the Old Testament people? What do they discover, and how is it refreshing, and how is it scary for people when they finally encounter the Old Testament as it is? I think the biggest... Uh... Well, I don't know if it's the biggest. The thing that stands out to me in teaching through the Old Testament, and on the Disciple Dojo podcast, we would spend about a year in each book of the Torah. Mm. And so we spend a year in Leviticus, a year in Numbers, you know, and, and most people aren't used to doing a Bible study where they spend a year in a yeah. book, especially yeah. not in Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll take a year to get through it. Yeah, they don't even finish it. They just put it down at that point. One of the things that I heard regularly from people that were at the Bible study or who listened on the podcast is I didn't realize how interesting this was. Mm. That was one thing that I heard a lot, just that it was interesting. We're used to the Torah, the law being a punchline instead of being genuine. Mm -hmm. The second thing was I didn't realize how applicable this mm. is to our culture today. When I was leading this study, the group was from a number of churches. It was just a gathering in, in Charlotte here. I knew the people in this group, between 20 and 50, depending on the week, I knew there were far-left Democrats mm -hmm. and far-right MAGA, flag-waving, pro-Trump conservatives. And this is long before Trump, but those were my two audiences. And I knew they were in the same Bible study. And I knew they loved each other. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was delightful for me as somebody who is politically independent and sees a lot on both sides that I think is uh, pretty unbiblical mm -hmm. was letting Scripture just be Scripture and letting it critique the golden calves on both sides, letting it challenge the assumptions that both ends of the spectrum tend to bring to the text. And me, you know, being able to kind of be in the middle and go, guys, yeah, this is going to mess with your politics or your social ethics or your theology. Well, so be it. Let it mess with it. How could it not? Because if there were issues that God was embarrassed about, he would have already purged them from his own word. He left things in the middle that force us to confront the things that we hold dear mm -hmm. and to have to engage with others who would see things very differently from us. There is no one humanity unless we can do that. And God has obviously got a theme going here that from the creation of Adam, he intends to create a new Adam in all of mm -hmm. us so that we're all part of this. He does not ever intend for us to bifurcate or to split in any ways that would divide us. We don't need more Towers of Babel. We've had that. We got a world that's based on Babel now. Yeah. And we keep fighting over it. So, what did they learn? This first group you had, what was the big lesson that you think they took away that you took away from doing the study with them? Well, I think it was just that scripture and the law, hmm. it's still the word of God. Now, we had to be careful and, of course, nuance and filter it through the new covenant. But once you do that, once you see the Old Covenant law as instilling the principles that don't change about God, that are just as relevant today as back then, but through a cultural and a religious vehicle apparatus that does change and did change with the coming of Jesus, yes. then you start to see the layers of Scripture and you start to be able to peel back and say, okay, these things that some people think are so important, like having the Ten Commandments displayed mm -hmm. in public places or whatever. That's actually putting the cart before the horse. 
the thing that God really cares about mm -hmm. are the transformed hearts of the people living according to those commandments, not the symbolic civil religious appearance because mm -hmm. that's the thing that right. people in jeremiah's day were, were holding up as like god's not going to abandon us because the temple of the lord the temple of the lord while that temple was still standing they thought everything was good whitewashed tombs and god was saying no your hearts are rot yeah and so to me that was a big kind of aha experience mm -hmm. that we had going through the torah over five years this god hasn't changed the rules have changed with the coming of jesus but god has not changed no you have led studies now and brought people of disparate political and ethnic and cultural beliefs together in the same room and said okay let's find god in the word of god and let's let him find us or find us out so let's talk about that study. You first brought these people into a room and learned how to teach the Old Testament and learned how to help them discover Jesus in the Old Testament. Walk us through it. I was praying about an opportunity to do more teaching. When I stepped down from my position on staff at the church, one of the things that I stepped away from was being able to regularly teach Bible classes to people, which is what I really, really enjoy. And so I was hoping that there would be an opportunity, but didn't know what, and, and was just starting out my own ministry. Wasn't even a nonprofit yet or anything. I mean, I was literally just subsisting. A friend of mine asked me if I would lead a Bible study for him because he couldn't do it that week and fill in for him. It was at uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse here in Charlotte, where the owner of the steakhouse had said, look, we'll set up a little lunch, little mini lunch buffet every week if you teach the Bible they wanted to aim it at business people and executives in the region. That's what it started as. But over about six years that he led it, it grew to people from different churches and people that worked in the building and people that were retired and just come for a lunch. It, it just grew to people asking, well, who's the kind of person that came? There wasn't one. <laughs> we had people in their 80s and 90s. We had people in their 20s. It was everything. Why do you think they were feeling safe in the same room together? Because usually people of different age ranges would be suspicious of what other age groups would think of them being there. Yeah, two reasons. One, free good food. There you go. That's going to bring anybody together. Two, the focus was not on their demographic. Mm -hmm. The focus was on scripture. There you go. And that's something that when you build a ministry around anything that focuses other than scripture then people who don't fit that demographic are going to feel less mm. like they belong. Yeah. It wasn't a singles ministry. It wasn't a retired thing. We didn't even really advertise it as a business lunch thing. We just were like, look, we're going to provide a free lunch to anybody that wants to come, and we're going to teach the Bible. If that sounds good to you, come to it. And that broad invitation, I think, is what made everybody feel like they belong there. I got to see friendships develop across ethnic lines. I got to see like genuine friendships between a young black guy in his 20s and a retired white guy in his 70s mm. and got to watch them actually genuinely become friends. And same thing across all of the demographics that we had. People were united in, we want to get together. We want to have a good lunch. We want to have a chat. We hadn't seen you in a week. How's your week going? You know, and then we're going to study scripture together. There's really nothing more you needed for a good Bible study than that. I've heard about the Matthews dinner party movement where they're trying to take this kind of ethic and put it somewhere other than the context of churches that our society has grown used to because it's so fractured demographically, as you say, and so mm -hmm. uh, laden with expectations for what the church is going to do to you when you walk in the doors. So they moved it out there and said, let's do that very thing. Let's serve a meal. Let's sit down together at a table and sup together. And mm -hmm. at those times, start talking about real things, let people say what really is on their hearts. 
that's where the spiritual stuff's going to happen anyway, not just yeah. in their minds. I'm glad that you're leading the way in your community. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have to wrap up for the first segment on this, but I want to thank James Michael Smith, Old Testament scholar and disciple JoJo. You can find him on YouTube and on the web. Please look for him out there, and we'll come back on our next program to talk more about the changes that happen when we actually experience Christ in the Old Testament. James, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Remember, none of this is possible without you. If you believe hearing the good news from the front lines of faith builds your faith, then let us know today. Just call us at 1-800-868-2478. Write us at Compassion Radio, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. Text the word COMPASSION to 53445. Or make your gift through our website, CompassionRadio.com. We need you, friend, so contact us today.